Good morning, everyone, and welcome to St. Luke's Forum. It is so important that you all are here to listen and learn as um, I am going to listen and learn to our two guests today, a very special forum focusing on the COVID-19 pandemic and the particular stage we're in right now in Atlanta and how it's impacting the Diocese of Atlanta and specifically St. Luke's Church. So I am thrilled to welcome uh, our guest, uh, Dr. Jody uh, Guest. Let me read to you her title. She's professor and vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at Rollins School of Public Health and associate program director for the Physician Assistant Program at the School of Medicine, Emory University. In other words, he, she's a, a top-notch epidemiologist at Emory, and she is a part of the diocesan task force or advisory group to the bishop uh, talking about how and under what circumstances we might gather again for worship. So before I invite you to say something, I do want to welcome you. Jody. thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And also is Neil Shem, our own junior warden, who happens to be the chair of the Return 435 Committee uh, at St. Luke's, uh, discerning when we might regather for worship, under what circumstances, and how we worship in the meantime. So welcome, Neil. Thanks for joining me. Good to be with you, Jody and Ed. Thanks. And the way we're going to do it is uh, Neil and I are kind of going to be co-interviewers of Jody. <clears throat> oh, by the way, she's on the vestry at St. Martin's. Is that correct, Jody? Yeah. So we're talking with a sister Episcopalian here, and but we'll try to keep our language accessible uh, and not get in too much Episcopal ease, uh, Episcopalian ease. And um, but I am very curious about the characteristics of this particular virus itself kind of its historic presence on the stage of history, and then uh, why we're in this particular stage we're in, and why we're doing such dramatic changes in the way we worship. And then we'll get on to um, asking Neil some questions about when are we going to worship again at, together, uh, Neil? Why don't you give us give, give us the date? You know, we'll, we'll pin him down about that. <laughs> Every date uh, I've given in the past has been wrong, so I... <laughs> that's, gonna case, predictions. that's been the case with us all. But, um, so, Neil, interrupt my uh, interviewing at any point, but let's get started by asking Lori. Lori, if you'll please tell us, some, what is the... What are the characteristics of this particular virus? It seems so different. And people are saying we've not had anything like this in 100 years. Yeah, well, so first of all, this is a novel coronavirus. So we are learning all the time. Um, and I think one of our larger issues we've had with communication and um, in giving information to the general population is because we're learning all the time, which we want to do in science, sometimes things we said a month or two ago may not be what we know anymore. And so we're always hoping to learn, but that does sometimes mean we're pivoting or changing some of our um, 
our communication about it. And that that's tough because it's, it can be interpreted as we don't know what we're talking about. Um, but we know it's a novel coronavirus. Coronaviruses are not new to us, but this one is. Um, it, it is believed to have come from bats in China and have had a probably an intermediary um, animal. The pangolin is considered probably the most likely of the intermediate animals. Um, and then based on the fact that we're such an interconnected community across the world, um, travel is now, um, well, a couple months ago was something we did so easily and so frequently, it spread very quickly. Um, there is still conversation about the asymptomatic phase of this virus, but what we know is that you have an asymptomatic period. Most people believe that you can shed virus and, um, and are contagious during that time. Some people will go on to have symptoms. Some of them will not. We are unclear how many people have COVID-19 who are asymptomatic. We have not been able to get a very good handle on that. That is mostly um, assumptions based on mathematical modeling at this point. Um, and then there's still some conversation about if asymptomatic folks, people who never develop symptoms, if they can spread the virus. And it makes sense that they probably can, but we're not sure. There's also, we're putting people into buckets of symptomatic, asymptomatic, and there's probably a fairly large amount of personal variation in how much virus people are carrying and how much they're shedding it and that how much that makes them contagious. The reason we've seen this be such a big deal is it does appear to spread pretty fast. It does appear to be fairly contagious. Um, and it also has a death rate that we should be very concerned about. And there's a lot of conversation of it doesn't have a death rate that's different than the flu. This isn't any different than the flu. Why does this feel different? Some of that is those numbers are not accurate. Um, you know, the, the comparisons are not appropriate comparisons. Some of it is we have all had exposure to the flu. So we all have some ability to combat it, plus we have a vaccination for the flu every single year. So that makes these things very different. Um, and what we do know is that there have been a tremendous amount of lives lost from them. And um, at, at this point in time in the United States, that is speeding up, that is not slowing down. And so it makes it a really formidable um, opponent for us and it makes prevention and prevention messages really important. And in public health and in epidemiology, we're usually pretty quiet for the general population. Most people don't know what we do. Um, until recently, most people couldn't have told you what an epidemiologist was um, or if they knew one. And we spend a lot of time making sure things don't happen. Well, people don't talk a lot about things that don't happen. And so, um, you know, to some extent, this has catapulted all of our work out into the general population. But, but the population, the general public is not used to us coming forward with really strong statements and saying, everyone needs to stay home. That's never happened in any of our lifetimes. Um, we've never in this country made a big statement about wearing masks. We also in this country have never talked about washing our hands so much. Um, you just, there's some things that are really different about this, but those preventions um, vary in how hard they are. Some of them are pretty easy. Some of them are harder. Staying home is hard. 
Um, changing our entire lifestyle is really hard, but we wouldn't be suggesting these things if we didn't think they would work. Yep, thank you. Um, let's go ahead and talk about this recent shift. And may I describe it as it has impacted me, both as a priest, a leader of gathered worship or any kind of worship, and also as um, a decision maker for a faith community that's uh, in the thousands. Um, and so immediately, I mean, you, you know the history, but just for the sake of, of the history of, uh, in this forum, you know, before Palm Sunday, it was get out of church, go home, start doing things like having, even if you have a three hour service on Good Friday, uh, have it from home. And my wife and I turned our dining room in our home, our retirement home in Birmingham, Alabama, where we happened to be headquartered into an Easter center, you know, and later found out that 1200 people had worshiped into our dining room on Easter. I mean, it, it was just all of that. And then we came back and then we, we've had six singers and then down to four singers and then down to one singer. And then this past Sunday and today, that one singer is in a completely different room. Right. Hugely dramatic shift. And I preached my sermon without a mask in another third room, just because I'm a rather impassioned preacher. <laughs> find it difficult to, to be quiet when I'm preaching. And, and there's this thing about how the virus is communicated mm -hmm. and how long that stuff stays in the air. And that's as far as my scientific vocabulary will take me. So right. if you'll unpack that in right. terms of kind of giving your scientific perspective on the history that I've just given. Right. So, um, you know, there were very quick decisions made about everyone should should move back home. Um, large gatherings were going to be easy places for this virus to spread. We know from other communicable diseases um, that we deal with all the time, um, pneumonia and HIV and, all, and STDs and all sorts of other things um, that are part of our normal vocabulary as epidemiologists or infectious disease epidemiologists that some of these things are super easily spread, some of them are not as easily spread. Um, it appeared very quickly that this is a very easily spread virus and um, it needs people to spread it. And so the more people there are together, the, more, the higher the probability there is that there's someone there that might have it. And then if they're in close connection to all these other folks, they have the ability to spread it to a whole bunch of people at one time. So that's kind of the idea of everyone needs to be separated. Certainly the goal would have been to stay separated for as long as possible to get the virus out of a community. And based on some um, very experienced modelers of infectious, infectious diseases, there was an idea of how long that might be. That mathematical modeling kind of ran into a wall that we're gonna call politics. And, um, and, and people who were very concerned about economics and shutting down in an economy and what that feels like because that feels super uncomfortable and we're not used to that. So you had 
public health saying you need to do this and you had economists saying you need to do this and you had politicians in the middle making decisions um, about when we should reopen. And so um, I think um, most public health officials would say um, the state we're in reopened um, earlier than we would have wished. And, um, but like connecting this to the way that the diocese worked, the Atlanta diocese, Episcopal diocese, we, we studied the numbers and we said we were gonna be very true to the numbers and how they are moving in the state. And so reopenings are meant to be like a step back into the water. And then if things seem okay, then you take another step. And if they don't seem okay, then you walk backwards. And, um, and they're never likely to be linear forward. Um, and so that's what you've seen from the diocese. So originally the message was, okay, you might be safe with six people in a room and now we're not certain about that, but it's also what you're doing in that room. Um, and so you said you're an impassioned preacher. Um, singers are also impassioned, um, you know, people who are using their mouths and the respiratory system in a way that um, everyone else speaking is not. And so we've learned that um, passionate speakers project more um, and they're projecting all their virus particles as well. Singers are also doing that. It's a really good way to spread it. And that's a better way to spread it than just a quieter conversation between two people. So not only is it the density of people, it's what you're doing when you're doing it. Um, and the way you're talking with each other. Masks really help, um, but singers don't wanna be wearing a mask. That, that um, is cutting off their instrument. Um, and a lot of um, folks who want to um, speak, speak with a lot of facial expressions. And so that feels hard um, because you're covering up facial expressions as well. But if you have the privilege of being able to be isolated in different rooms and still producing your work, that's a great place to call on technology to keep us connected. Um, given do we have this tension between politics and the economy, yeah. uh, which who knows when, if ever, that gets resolved, that, that turns my attention more to What's the likelihood of getting a vaccine anytime in the near future? And do you have any insight into that? Yeah, so Emory um, is one of the sites that's doing some of the, um, the big vaccination work um, for COVID-19. And the vaccine so far is looking very efficacious. It does appear that it is doing exactly what we would hope it would do. And it's going to move into um, wider distribution pretty quickly. Um, so it is so far a really positive story on vaccinations. Now that's good news. Yeah, it is. We need one. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, my wife and I moved back south from Pasadena, California mm. uh, five years ago. And yesterday, the big shocker, one of the big shockers, there were many yesterday, unfortunately, was that the Rose Parade has been canceled for January 1, which all of a sudden, I had been hearing, Ed, think about returning in January, or don't get too expected about returning to worship too far ahead of January. 
And then here we had that reinforcement coming across the continent saying, it's going to be that. Do you live, Jody, with any kind of time schedule or have has this humbled you too much to say? <laughs> it has for sure humbled me too much. I um, am not, a, not able to predict what's going to happen. Um, I think that we could bet on a few things. Um, I think we are going to see that when the flu season hits in Georgia, that we're are going we're going to have more immunocompromised folks, and then this virus may capitalize on that. Um, so when people talked about seasonality of coronavirus in hopes that it would be seasonal like the flu, that has not been the case. But I do think that we may see a change and an uptick even. Um, even if we'd gotten in, under control in Georgia and we get it under control between now and when flu season starts, there is the probability of an inc of an uptick then because we will see immunocompromised folks from the flu traveling around like it normally would in Atlanta and in Georgia. So I do think that we can expect that it will pick back up again. I hope that that is wrong. Um, I do think that we will see a vaccination coming in sometime around, you know, the flu season as well. Um, you know, Dr. Fauci originally said he hoped it would be by the end of 2020. I'll let him do the predictions on that. Um, now I think that he, um, I heard also March 2021, all of that's still in the Atlanta typical flu season zone. Um, and that would be really a fantastic time for us to see this vaccination come out um, and be widely available. So I hope we'll see it then. Um, I do want to caution that we are, would, should expect a second wave of coronavirus, but we're not out of wave one. And I think that that has been a misperception uh, that we are now in wave two and we are fully head on still in the first cycle of, of COVID-19 for the state of Georgia. Got it. Neil interrupt, but I want to go back to something we uh, went through pretty quickly, not to spend, not to dwell there, but um, for me, Jody, there was this moment where there was this, um, I was going to say infectious conversation. There was this conversation that went through the choral music kind of priesthood liturgical community in America uh, about singing and how the virus particles were transmitted particularly effectively yes. in, in choirs, etc. Uh, and then uh, we began to hear that studies were being conducted about preaching as well. So uh, I just wanted to mark that. Is there anything else to say there other than that? Well, I think that we have a case study where we saw a choir um, was a really good super spreader event. Um, you know, so we now can mark events that have been super spreaders. And um, you can say, well, in Washington state, there was a super spreader event in a choir, in a church choir. Um, you know, there's a, been a super spreader event at a convention and at a couple of big funerals and things like that. Um, when you propel your breath forward, your particles go further. And so we're keeping the six foot distance um, as a typical amount of 
propulsion of the virus and how far we expect it to go. Because it doesn't stay up in the air, it's going to fall. Um, but if you are speaking louder, if you are speaking more um, uh, vehemently, and if you're singing, your air particles from your mouth go further than those six feet. And that's what makes those particular types of events hard um, and more easily spread. Yeah. And do so, we have, excuse, go ahead, Neil. No, so is, is the, the, the recent, um, this recent study that um, has described the lingering of the aerosols mm -hmm. in, um, in a location, uh, is that the genesis of the most recent sort of stop, stop the in-gathering process, stop the planning, and the restriction on singing in the same room with another person? So aerosolizing of COVID-19 um, happens more in particular types of events. It is not my speaking, um, if I had COVID-19, it's unlikely it's being aerosolized with me. Um, I'm not doing anything particularly um, uh, active at the moment. Um, for the most part, it's, we're not using the word aerosolized with it, but it is. Um, it gets in the air and then it spreads out and then it falls. Mm -hmm. It um, falls, for the most part, on average, it falls within six feet of the person and within six feet of their mouth. And so one of the reasons you want to keep people apart is because that's the distance that you don't think the virus will, will move between. It then falls to the ground and depending on the kind of surface it's falling onto, it has a longer life expectancy. So metal surfaces, steel surfaces, it lives longer than it does in other kinds of surfaces. So um, some of our original thoughts about um, reopening for church services, not talking about the number of people, but if you left the room then empty for three days after a church service with the appropriate spacing and the appropriate people in it, your cleaning crew was then safer coming in to clean afterwards because the virus is unlikely to live longer than three days. So you've got some combinations of things there. You've got how far does it project? Where does it land? Does it stay up in the air? Does it come down? And then what does it land on and how long does it live? And um, we're trying to learn all those things, but our best understanding at the moment is um, in general, most people don't project further than six feet. Six feet becomes now our kind of rule of how far away we should be staying from people that we are not potting with, that they're, they're not our normal people that we live with. Um, and that surfaces need to be cleaned. And um, when someone else is touching them, we should be washing our hands really regularly and not touching our faces because we touch all sorts of things. If you never knew how often you touched your face, you probably figured it out in March. Um, because all of a sudden we were talking about it all the time, right? And so, um, you know, so you should be touching your, washing your hands because you're going to touch your face because you've touched the stuff. And that's part of also staying in your home is you're trying to stay from all of, stay away from all of those um, surfaces as well as just other people that you're going to be near who might have it. You know, Georgia Tech has a new um, app where you can actually go in based on um, population density and the amount of coronavirus that's in each area. And you can say, if I go to this place and have this many people there, what's the probability that I'm going to be in contact with someone who has COVID-19? And in Georgia, 
for 10 people, an event with 10 people, it varies between 4% to 36%. But the minute you hit 100 people, it's ranging from 93 to 98%. You know, so 100 people is too many people. Right. So you can look across the country and you can see those differences based on where the epidemic is in each of those parts of the country. So let's talk about the added factor of what happened in Georgia, Mm -hmm. along with some other states. Most recently, I don't know if you call it a surge or an uptick or whatever. We, as a diocesan ecosystem, taking a look at perhaps coming back under certain restrictions. I think it's fair to say, and Neil will speak for his committee, that we were not going to be interested in doing that. We were not attracted to doing that at St. Luke's, but some were for, you know, reasonable people were were attracted to that. And then uh, the bishop said, no, because of what's going on in Georgia, we've got to rewind this thing. That's right. Is, is, okay, so that that's correct. That and, is and, correct. Yeah. And, when and we it, were putting the um, reopening, um, the methods to reopen together, we were looking at the data that was available to us then. Um, in the time that it it took to craft that document and to make sure um, everyone was really comfortable with it and it was moving forward, and it was a very tiny reopening. Um, let's be clear, it was that little teeny tiny toe into the water to see how we did. Um, By the time it was, shortly after it was shared, the numbers that had been plateaued were were no longer plateaued. Um, And they were rising and they were rising pretty exponentially. And and so we, we met again and just said, look, we committed to following the numbers and uh, letting them dictate as much as we might yearn to be together, um, we do not want to be responsible for our congregants contracting COVID-19 and having any level of side effects from that. And so for the safety of the community that we were responsible for considering, um, we needed to walk that back. We knew at the time that we wrote it that it was going to be maybe a step forward, one or two steps back, a couple steps forward, and it was unlikely to just be let's step forward through all of these processes. Um, It happened faster than we anticipated. Um, Largely, um, if you were to look at the data, it's what we're living now is Memorial Day weekend. Um, Coming up, we're gonna be living through what happened for 4th of July. Um, So, you know, you you can go back to those dates and say, this is when the numbers started picking up again. Um, 12%, or sorry, the previous 16 days in Georgia has seen more than one third of the cases of COVID-19. So what we thought was bad in April is nothing compared to what we're seeing now. Got it, yeah. Well, Jody, for what it's worth, I, I thought the diocesan standards were actually helpful and clear as to the um, the limited uh, first option for regathering. And I know when uh, our group looked at it and actually sort of diagrammed it out, how we would have people coming in, how we'd space them. Right. Um, we decided 
probably wasn't something we'd recommend to the entire vestry to go to go forward with. Right. Um, you know, and when we wrote it, we knew that it was going to be so restrictive that there were going to be a lot of congregations that wouldn't choose to make that first step. But for those who were really yearning to do it and felt that they could do it in a safe manner, there needed to be some option available. Um, but I wasn't surprised that most churches chose not to consider that first step forward because it was super small, very limiting. What we also know is that we've learned to celebrate our um, community together in new ways. And when those ways are working and they're already safer um, and they're gonna actually connect more people than having 10 people together at church, it's hard to, to not wanna do that and continue forward with the um, really amazing novel ways that people have, have decided to worship together. Yeah, yeah. So since it seems that we're in that neighborhood, let's go ahead and go there. Mm -hmm. um, and for Neil to kind of talk about the, the fact that we have such a committee at St. Luke's because this will be the first time some St. Luke's parishioners are hearing about this. Uh, we've, we've tried to be transparent and it's been in some printed materials. Um, and then also we have visitors who come on these uh, forums. And then I want to back back up and do a little higher reflection, even asking the two of you wonderful, brilliant lay people to do a little theological reflection with me as we close it out. Okay. But right now, let's talk about, Neil, if you'll talk about the committee you're, you chair and kind of what the journey has been so far and about the survey. Sure. Well, we knew that you had been informally consulting with some parishioners um, with uh, public health experience, and that certainly the diocese had, had formalized their uh, their group. And so we thought, well, the diocese can make a, a higher level um, determination, but we need to have a group uh, that's really focusing focusing on 435 Peace Street, where we're located. And so, you know, with good fortune, we, uh, we reached out to, uh, we have two epidemiologists, we have two physicians, we have a, um, actually a property manager who manages over 40 shopping centers around uh, Metro Atlanta, and he's had extensive planning experience for getting his tenants back uh, in their business. Uh, and of course, we have, um, one of our clergy members who's the um, associate for uh, liturgy and our chancellor to keep us uh, sort of in line. Uh, and then probably more importantly, we have um, our director of operations, our office manager, our office administration person, and our facilities manager, because those are the folks having, having actually looked at the, the limited option, there right. are a lot of logistics that have to be uh, taken care of on the ground. And so while we can think and have grand thoughts of those folks are probably going to be uh, the ones that actually carry out or make the logistics work to, to have some form of uh, opening. So w we've had a chance to meet several times via Zoom. Uh, and one of the things we decided initially was that we needed to go out and survey uh, the congregation. And so we have looked at a lot of different surveys and cobbled together something that I think is going to work for us 
we do portion of the survey is just a brief check-in on the spiritual and physical health of folks, uh, asking them, uh, one, are we doing, how are we doing with our virtual um, offerings? Uh, are there other things we can do? Uh, are there others, other things we should stop doing and emphasize uh, other things? And then we sort of shift uh, to when we're able, if uh, there's some ability for us to offer prayer time in the nave or something for one person, two people, you know, are those kind of offerings, again, when we're able, uh, something that the uh, congregation would be interested in? And then taking the further step of asking what sort of precautions would you be willing to take mm -hmm. to return? And then what would you require uh, before you before you returned? And just speaking with people, now we haven't, the survey will go out um, uh, early in the week of uh, July 20th. Uh, and, um, but early returns, just talking to individual parishioners, we seem to be sort of all over the map in terms of let's get back there now to I'm not coming for six months. Right. Uh, I'm not coming until there's a vaccine or I'm not coming until there's an effective therapeutic. So we, uh, I, think, I, I think I can speak for everybody in our group is we all really want to get back. Um, but we know that, you know, we'd be given the charge to develop recommendations that we only do it safe, uh, safely and that uh, it's dictated by, by science and not uh, anything else, frankly. Um, and as, as um, I keep saying, you know, we've got to focus on the, the, the three W's, you know, wear a mask, wash your hands, and watch your social distancing. And right. that, that's going to be our mantra for some time to come. I think it really is. You know, I think um, I am really tired of being in my home office. I'm really tired of being here all the time. Um, I would love to be out in public and, um, you know, be interacting with my friends and my students and um, all sorts of communities I belong in. Um, and it is frustrating sometimes to um, recognize that um, a lot of folks who have the privilege to stay home are tired of staying home and so aren't. And that means the rest of us are gonna be staying home longer. Um, and you know, the fact that we're still in the first wave of COVID-19 is um, an outcome of that. And so, you know, that's hard and it's hard, um, but we're talking about asking people to make some pretty big sacrifices and, um, and not everyone um, wants to make those sacrifices. We're asking for them for a longer period of time. So we're asking for, um, we're asking a lot. And, um, and it's hard, it is hard. There's well, I, around it. I, I, I am right now in, uh, in St. Simon's with my wife and we were walking the beach yesterday uh, I have to say, I did not have my mask on. I had it in my pocket, but I was standing off in the water. No one was really near me, and it was a beautiful ocean breeze uh, blowing. And as you walk down East Beach, you will see tent after tent after tent. Now, the tents are spread apart. The tents are probably 10 or 15 feet apart, but they're very large tents 
with very large families uh, under each tent. There does not seem to be much social distancing uh, going on uh, as you walk down the beach here in St. Simons. Yeah, I think we're going to have to learn how to do things, um, you know, creatively. And um, it doesn't mean you can't see anyone, um, but it does mean you really need to to be very, very careful and vigilant when you're doing it. You know, we're seeing a huge uptick in cases in 18 to 30 year olds in um, Atlanta and and across the state of Georgia, and those are folks that are um, some of some of that is because they are some of our essential workers or our our um, our first line workers who are back at work. And so that's putting them at some risk. And some, some of that is um, an age group that we've not done a very good job of, of getting prevention messages to, um, and who are particularly tired of staying put in one place because this, it's a very social age group. And, um, and you know, that's just tough. I live with a 20 year old and he wants to be at school. He doesn't want to be at home living with us anymore. Um, this is the time of his life when he shouldn't be doing that. Um, so we've had some really dramatic changes happen to what we anticipate our lives should look like. Um, to get slightly philosophical, though, for a moment, I think what this virus is asking us to do, though, is to be paying attention to how we contribute to society and that this is our, this is what we're called to do right now to not have it be about us individually, but to be about our connectedness to each other and our contract, social contract with each other, that we are all in this together. And my mask protects you from me. My mask does more for you than it does for me. And that is to me a very outward sign of my willingness to be connected to you. And so I wish we would turn that message around and talk about how it is our engagement with humanity and it is our social contract with each other and it's who we should want to be. As our bishop says, our first obligation is to love our neighbor. Right, and this is, this is that. Indeed, indeed. Well before said. We, yes, very well said. Neil, before we leave the survey, uh, and then begin to kind of wrap up our conversation. Please do just tell us about the survey and when it's coming to us, how we can get uh, our own ideas back and opinions and then how we share our opinions to, with you. Well, they, the, the survey is um, coming out um, early on the week of uh, July 20th. Uh, it'll be sent to parish-wide via email, and there will be a link uh, to the survey. Um, and uh, again, we'll be sort of checking in on the physical, spiritual health of the parish, uh, asking their views about uh, uh, what we're doing now, if there are other things that we should be doing now, uh, and um, what they anticipate, what they would be willing to do and precautions they would be willing to take in when in good time we're allowed to return uh, to the church. And there's, of course, there's also the final question uh, that uh, sort of an essay, uh, is there anything else you would like to tell us? Yeah. Um, I was wondering whether I should put that one in the survey or not. 
all anyone who wants to uh, use that box to write an essay, uh, all of those uh, will be directed to our senior warden, Melba Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> nice shot. Nice. But then we'll, we'll we'll tabulate all the results uh, and and survey monkey and then uh, circulate those uh, among the parish and and certainly the vestry will be paying close attention to those and how we move forward. Very good, thank you. So, and and wrapping up, I really do want to go back up uh, several thousand feet and ask each of you to do a little uh, reflection. Uh, theological, cultural, whatever. But we've mentioned some things that I think have deep resonance with us, both philosophically, politically, in a good way, not partisan politically, but politically, uh, kind of the kingdom of God political. And, and then also, what in the world is God doing? And um, what should we be learning? So, <clears throat> Jody, you mentioned that um, science ran into politics yeah. on the journey. So that's one curiosity I have. And then, I mean, you were a worshiping Episcopalian in the Eucharistic manner. I'm really curious about, and, and I know Neil and his wife are, you know, what are you all doing with those urges? And then what are y'all thinking about God? And what are you thinking about um, our learning? I, I just read an essay, pandemic as um, portal, you know? What are we moving into? So any anything along that those lines, I would love to hear. Jody, will you go first? Sure. So, um, so I'll preface this by saying I am a little bit of a um, political junkie. So public health running into politics kind of marries two of the things I love, but this didn't run into each other in a positive way. Um, public health really should be above politics. It should not be partisan. It should be about the health of our community and our citizens and our people. And, um, and we have a long history of public health being not partisan and being, um, being able to transcend political parties. And um, I think we would be in a better place if that were currently the case. I, um, I have a lot of angst over how political this has become. I have a lot of angst over how partisan our country is in general. Um, and that this virus and our approach to it, um, I think that that's the most important part. It's not the virus has become political, it's our approach to how we've decided to talk about it and what we've decided to do and how, um, and how people have chosen to lead through this or around this um, have led us to the place where we are currently finding an unabated virus in large portions of our country. And that is sad um, and, and unfortunate. And I wish we weren't in that position. Um, I wish people would put public health and people's health above political divide. Um, from a perspective of what, what this pandemic might be teaching us, what it might be doing, I mean, I think that there's some good data that it might be helping our climate a little bit that we've 
um, we've got some neat things that we've learned how to do. We've learned how to, to worship online. Um, and that will be a lesson that we can take forward for folks who are at home and need to stay home for whatever reason. In the future, this won't be new for us. And so this hybrid kind of uh, ability to connect um, is perhaps a positive. I think one of our potential biggest positives is in our country, the racism that has very specifically changed people's health outcomes with COVID-19, but a tremendous other number of, of health outcomes that we don't talk about as much. If we could actually use this to pivot and make sure that we're talking about that and we no longer are shying away from it or saying there's not data to support it, if we are willing to attack the way racism changes life expectancy for certain parts of our, our community, staying at home for four or five months will have been totally worth it. So I really hope that we use this to, pro to propel ourselves into some really difficult conversations, but ones that we've not been willing to have. That's powerful, thank you. Mm -hmm. Neil. Well, on, on, a, on a more macro level, um, the ver all the crises, the various crises that we have now piled up on top of one another, I think it provides us an opportunity for um, a major shift in the national will to more positively address the issues, recognize the issues, and address the issues before us. On a, on a micro, personal level, uh, I think that um, while I've been you know, a member of St. Luke's for over 35 years, I don't think I've ever felt closer to the church community than I do now, mm. because there are just so many opportunities even though it is virtual, uh, for us to be together. Uh, and I think, I know I certainly am taking uh, more advantage of those. Mm. Nice. Very. Wow, you both have moved me so much. Mm. I'm deeply, deeply grateful um, for your time today, for your leadership. Um, both of you are working hard. I know, uh, I know about you, Jody, and now I feel you. Um, and then I, I get to work with Neil a lot. And you both are, are giving so much. I just love the word self-offering. And you are self-offerers um, for the church and for the culture. And also for this new, more possibly beautiful world that we could enter. Oh my God, wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to say, like you said, you know, I stayed home for five to seven months and I made a contribution, my own little contribution to a more beautiful world that is less separate, less polarized, less divisive, less partisan um, and more interconnected. So thank you very much. Any 
Any other words you need to say to wrap it up? No, thank yeah. you so much for having me. Thank you. And for the good work you're doing and listening to the data and public health officials, I, I appreciate that so much. Oh, let's say something else. Let's, let's as we re-narrate Christianity, let's, re, let's have a story about Christianity that is science-friendly. Yeah. <laughs> and sees God working in science and sees science as a sacrament rather than as an enemy. That's, that's another thing I want. I love that. Yeah. Let it change our evolving understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and the spirit and the community and all that stuff. Well, everybody who's been listening, thank you very much for staying tuned. We will continue to try to have a meaningful, compelling, um, relevant, uh, spiritual conversations here right after church on uh, at St. Luke's Church. Thank you very much. Have a blessed week. Bye-bye.